Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to episode five of Hot and Bothered, a podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. I'm Daniel Aldana Cohen, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow in These Times magazine. And as always, we're hosted by Descent Magazine. Our episodes and links to articles mentioned in the show are up at descentmagazine.org. And we're also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and at the iTunes store. That we are. It's nice to be back after a little hiatus. I'm excited to dive back in. So here's my proposal. Let's just get the bad news right out of the way up top and then work our way down to some good news. You've got a deal. Or rather, a Green New Deal. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about the dad joke, but it, Green New Deal is a great idea. And in fact, this show is the first in what will be a kind of open-ended, occasional series on this idea of a Green New Deal. You know, a plan to build clean energy, get real about green jobs, strike a blow against capitalism, and, you know, stop runaway climate change. So we're starting this week with a feature interview with Professor Robert Pollan, an economist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a leading proponent of a really big and serious Green New Deal. Now, I've got to admit, I've been a little skeptical of the phrase Green New Deal for a while. It's been around since 2009. It's not a new idea, but it is good. And especially as we're looking toward November to a prospective Clinton presidency and start thinking about the demands that the climate movement and other movements can converge around to put pressure on her White House. But that's another episode. So the bad news is the numbers are getting a little worse on climate. Bill McKibben wrote a great new piece in the New Republic called Recalculating the Climate Map. It's based on a new study from Oil Change International, where the bottom line is that there's so much carbon stored in the reserves that the fossil fuel companies have already and are already exploiting uh, that we can't afford to build any new infrastructure at all. So no more mines, no more pipelines, no more fracked gas wells, nothing. Yeah, I mean, what did Walter Benjamin say about pulling the emergency brake of history? I, I really don't know, but we need to do something fast. Yeah, so there's another study that's gotten a bunch of attention. Uh, it was called The Truth About Climate Change, authored by Robert Watson. He is the former chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, kind of leading climate science body, uh, and of course, written by other climate luminaries. And the bottom line there, we're on track to crash through the kind of two degree Celsius warming guardrail uh, by 2050, a lot sooner than previously thought. So the authors are arguing that countries need to double the speed of decarbonization uh, that they had pledged to, to take on at the Paris Climate Summit last year. Right. And everybody knew, or most everybody who is really thinking about this, knew that the agreements laid out in Paris were totally under prepared for what we what we need uh, and that we needed to be more ambitious. But this is a serious wake up call. And didn't we already pass 400 parts per million too? that scary amount of carbon in the atmosphere that everyone's talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, uh, pass me the flask. Well, Carbon Leisure will be another show that doesn't get recorded at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. But yeah, it's depressing. And as our listeners may or may not know, the organization 350, a friend of the podcast, uh, are named for 350 parts per million, which is long gone now. But just to be 100% clear, as we learned in episode three, it's not too late to stop runaway climate change. Time is tight, but it's not over. It is not over. You know, this is not about doom and gloom. Uh, in fact, there's a ton of people mobilizing right now around this issue. Really exciting sort of surge of movements. Um there's been this incredible and inspiring upsurge, in particular lately in North Dakota. 
bringing together a brilliant new coalition which is anchored in indigenous struggle. Uh, and all of this has been in the face of pretty intense police repression. So, Kate, I understand you've done some reporting on the protests uh, at the Dakota Access Pipeline and that you'll share some of that reporting with us before uh, I go on to talk to Prof. Pollan about going all in with the Green New Deal. That's right. For those who haven't heard of it, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a proposed 1,100-plus mile-long fossil fuel infrastructure project set to carry natural gas through to the Gulf of Mexico. Behind the project is Energy Transfer Partners, a Dallas-based company that specializes in fossil fuel transportation, so pipelines. Initially set to go through North Dakota's capital city of Bismarck, the company moved its path over concerns that the pipeline would impact the city's water main. Bismarck is nearly 95% white, and the pipeline is now set to cut through Standing Rock Sioux land over several sacred sites and important water sources there. Since April, protests have been ongoing against the project and picked up again in September. There's an ongoing legal case running against the project, but the tribe's request for a temporary halt on construction until the case was decided was rejected by a district court judge. Under pressure, the Obama administration stepped in literally minutes after the court's decision came down and ordered the company that it couldn't construct on federal land, then requested that it stop voluntarily in another spot as well. Consequently, energy transfer partners still can't build on that federal land, but construction is free to happen along many other parts of the pipeline's proposed route. Water protectors have been continuing to fight the pipeline ever since. In the studies Daniel and I just talked about, the bottom line is pretty clear no new fossil fuel infrastructure. So with any hope, the battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline will give way to many more, since literally none of the projects that fossil fuel executives are cooking up can go forward if we want to have any sort of shot at staying below two degrees warming, let alone 1.5. It's also the largest gathering of Native American tribes in history. So even if there weren't a carbon bomb at the center of it, the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline would be pretty historic in their own right. This is Desiree Kane, a Miwok woman who's been at Standing Rock for the better part of the last three months. She's now at the Osheti Sakawan encampment, the largest at Standing Rock, containing around 3,000 people and more when volunteers arrive on the weekends. Part of her job is working on the security dispatch, so if you hear walkie-talkies beeping throughout the interview, that's why. You'll also hear a hum overhead from one of the several helicopters, biplanes, and drones that fly over the camp for several hours a day. I spoke to Desiree on Monday, October 10th, on Indigenous Peoples Day, and also less than a day after a major court decision came down about the pipeline, which she'll explain. First question, uh, what's happening at, at the encampment right now? What happened yesterday in the courts, and what's happened today? Right, so yesterday, the injunction that was halting construction on the Dakota Access Pipeline was declined, so construction is allowed to begin henceforth. The pipeline is 86% complete at this point in North Dakota, and just understandably, the rest of that is all centered right around here where we, uh, within the camp, uh, the water protectors that are, are out there stopping the pipeline have been able to stop that so far. Uh, today we had 28 arrested. We have um, 
been facing a lot of police and state repression of our right to assemble and our right to speak. So we've been seeing many, many, many more law enforcement officers surveilling, driving back and forth past camp. We've got a private security helicopter that circles for about four hours a day, every day, taking pictures. You've got PIs and other hired folks out here doing intelligence gathering for peaceful, unarmed water protectors out here. We're spending a lot of time in prayer and in dance, doing things like going to sweats and watching out for one another, uh, making sure that our mind, body, and spirits are solid as we move forward into what are hopefully um, not very intense days, but given that it is a multi-billion dollar multinational company that we are fighting against that is armed with the U.S. military, state police, the National Guard has been called in, we've got Wisconsin State Police, we've got the county sheriffs out here. Um, with all of this going on, uh, it is getting more and more intense. The intimidation is, well, they're trying to intimidate us an awful lot more than before. I've been out here three months. So really what's been going on is we've seen in the last couple of days a ramping up of, of intimidation, surveillance, and all that does is make our spirits stronger. It makes our community drawing closer to one another and makes us stronger as we continue to fight together. And could you talk also about the significance of this ruling and this increased repression uh, coming in the hours before and on Indigenous Peoples Day, a federal holiday in the U.S. that's, of course, known to many people as, as Columbus Day. So, you know, how does the Dakota Access Pipeline itself connect to this history of the United States government's relationship to Indigenous people and land and water? There is significant historical significance to what's going on out here. The seven council fires of the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people has not come together like this since the Battle of Greasy Grass, which was over 140 years ago. Um, it's also, uh, it's historic in a way out here because we're armed with cameras, and we're armed with prayer, and we're armed with the knowledge of over 300 nations that are present here supporting. The U.S. government has always had um, environmental genocide, eco-colonialism deemed as a protected activity. And given that the legal underpinnings of treaty law are the strongest, and these are treaty lands, um, we're looking to keystone the Dakota Access Pipeline. And what I mean by that is we're looking to have it stopped by executive order right now uh, by President Obama because he does have it within his power to stop this pipeline. So it's historically significant on a lot of fronts. It's also this encampment, the Osheti Shikoan encampment has been, I think it's turned into one of the largest native cities uh, on the continent and also one of the largest cities period in North Dakota because it's not very populated out here. 
So over time, there's no doubt that this place where I am right now will become, there will be historical markers that pop up here once we stop the pipeline. And people look back and say, you know, I was part of that. I was part of something that has never happened in history, never before, except for maybe outside of powwows, which are something within our community that we, you know, do. Um, do you get nations coming together like this around a certain issue? And a lot of people are, it's, it's not about being anti-energy sovereign or uh, energy independent, and it's not about anything like that. It's about that there was no meaningful consultation for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. So, you know, this the permits to get this pipeline laid and crossing the river and all of those things, they were really just um, pushed through and there was never an option to say no. And even if that no, if that opportunity to say no was there, it doesn't seem like it would matter. It's going to happen anyway. And since these are treaty lands, that's why people are gathering here. We have the support of, of the treaties and those need to be honored. Already the um, ancestors of some of the signers of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, um, you know, their final resting places are on the land that Dapple owns. Had a whole bunch of ancestors, grave sites desecrated, uh, effigies desecrated, places of historical significance have all been desecrated. So when we talk about what's gone down in history, you know, this is colonialism all over again with a lot of, uh, from my understanding, the oil that would be coming off of this pipeline is out for export. And that means the U.S. is just a resource colony uh, where resources are extracted and shipped off for the benefit of another nation, regardless of those who have to live with poison water, poison air. Um, I think that's just leans straight on into the point about colonialism still terrorizing indigenous communities to this day. So we've had a lot of historical things going on, gathering of nations, all of that. But we're also seeing history play out uh, in a way that has always played out. And just this time, we're just saying no. Just the time for asking nicely is over, and we just are saying no more. Just straight out, no, you shall not pass. And we have many, many, many people out here, myself included, who are occupying federal lands um, and we have a lot of people who are willing to put their bodies on the line and not let that pipeline pass um, and in the next coming days I think we'll we'll be seeing a lot of things go on um, hopefully in our favor uh, today actress Shailene Woodley was arrested on the front lines they targeted her that's also kind of a historic move because They've been going after journalists and celebrities, anyone with a big voice looking to draw attention to the issue they've been silencing. So there's just all kinds of historical things going on here that have never happened. And we're paving the way right now to where uh, this won't happen again 
to other Native nations that find themselves in the same position. Because if the same situation happens in the future, guess what? There's going to be thousands of Native people putting themselves in the way yet again to say no more. And what does the, the legal process moving forward look like? And what happens to the encampment as winter moves in? How do folks plan to continue protecting the land and water at Standing Rock and continue to, to keep saying no? I am not a lawyer, um, so I can't really comment on what is you know what the le- legalities of certain things are. Um, but we here at camp are well-loved and well-supported, meaning when we need something, When I put on my Facebook page, for example, that we need AAA batteries for the walkie-talkies that we use, we get a case or a carton, a whole bunch of stuff. So when talking about how we're going to sustain ourselves over the winter, all we have to do is put it out there, the things that we need and we're being provided for. You know, everyone out here is a volunteer. There are no paid positions. Um, We're all just here doing what we can with what we have, with the support of literally the entire world. There were 80,000 people that rallied, I believe it was in Iceland or Sweden, uh, in support. So we've reached critical mass where we've got the the whole world watching. It's a little bit cliche, Um, but given that the whole world is watching, we're able to accomplish a heck of a lot more than when it's just us out here without folks watching out. And for people who are following along with what's happening and and looking for some way to support people on the ground, what are some ways they can contribute? Well, we have an immediate need and it will be continually ongoing for firewood as well as meat. Um, So being able to bring firewood, meat, things like extreme cold weather sleeping bags that can go to negative 40 are really, really needed. Camp sleeping bags are great, but when it's negative 20, 30, 40 out here, you can only put so many sleeping bags inside of sleeping bags inside of sleeping bags and stay warm. So we do need things that are focused explicitly around extreme cold weather. Things like boots, gloves, um, hats and scarves, those sorts of things are all really welcome. Um, We need things like coveralls, the warm weather coveralls. We also have a need for building materials. If anyone's able to help with building materials as we winterize, we're building things like windbreakers because the wind out here is incredibly intense. And when you add cold weather with that, it's only gonna get worse. Um, We need those things as well as um, just supporting indigenous people that wanna come out to the space is incredibly important because this is the first time in, I think, ever in history where, you know, this is our space and this is our time to do a lot of healing. Uh, There's been a lot of historical trauma that our communities have been put through and have been, you know, we've experienced. And to come into a place like this, there's a lot of forgiveness, a lot of healing happening. So to focus in on supporting indigenous people who wanna come out here, who want to pray, who want to be intrinsically understood about what that historical trauma feels like, uh, provides a, 
a type of community care that is basically never afforded to Indigenous people. Thank you so much. I think that that just about answers all my questions. Is there anything else you, you want to add? Yeah. Um, just please keep the tweets and the Facebook posts and things like that coming. Hashtag no D-A-P-L. We really need to keep that momentum going because just when it starts to get cold, the warmth of being embraced by the community outside of this space we do pay attention to that. We all see it when we're able to. Um, and there's a certain type of warmth from that that we are really going to continue to need and we've been receiving. Um, so just to keep us in your thoughts and keep us in your tweets and stuff like that is is really appreciated. Thank you for that really wonderful report, Kate. It does seem that we really are witnessing the birth of a pretty astonishing new movement here. We are. But, of course, for all the terrible new fossil fuel projects that we block, we also need to be massively ramping up and transforming our renewable energy system, also jobs. And it's on that note that Daniel will be talking to Robert Pullen, who is professor of economics and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's done a number of studies on the potential for a Green New Deal, including a massive upcoming one that I'm sure he'll tell you about, Daniel. That's right. And Kate, I'm sure you'll appreciate that he's also written some of the classic anti-austerity takedown articles, as well as the wonderful book Back to Full Employment, which was published a couple of years ago by MIT Press. So without any further ado, my conversation with Robert Pollan. So Bob, it's really fantastic to have you on the podcast. Uh, and I wanted to start by asking you about how you ended up doing this kind of work. I think you're a, a pretty rare economist who is trying to model a realistic, equitable, low carbon economic development pathway. So I'm curious, you know, how did you get into working on climate change as an economist? Uh, well, I have to confess that this wasn't my area of, of research at all for a long, long time. Um, so I, my background is more in um, macroeconomics, political economy, uh, low-wage labor markets. So I've uh, done <clears throat> a lot of work on macrofinance uh, from a political economy standpoint. And then I started working on employment issues uh, and including in developing countries. And I was working on living wage, the research around living wages. So this was just not, not that I wasn't interested as a citizen, it wasn't a research area, but uh, eventually it sank in with me that if you're doing macro and you're talking about economic growth and jobs, that uh, you can't be serious about it unless you incorporate environmental constraints and the environmental impacts of economic growth. And I, I wasn't assuming that uh, there was an answer as to how you integrate economic growth, jobs, and, uh, and climate change, climate stabilization, but it seemed to me that I couldn't honestly keep talking and doing macro uh, without incorporating this. And in fact, in a book that I published in 2003 called Contours of Descent, I actually say in chapter one 
the end of chapter one, I say, well, I'm not dealing with environmental constraints on these macro problems, uh, which I should be doing, but I'm, I'm not. And that I said that this is something for my future research. So it was not long after that that I kind of circled into it, really with no background at all. And my initial focus was to, folk, uh, to consider the issue of um, this trade-off between environmental protection and jobs. Because it uh, seemed to me that any kind of environmental program would entail large-scale investments. Large-scale investments create jobs. So uh, the initial premise, and you know, this was in poll after poll, uh, you know, uh, protecting the environment costs jobs. Which is more important to you, jobs or the environment? And so then we had the you know, tree huggers versus the hard hats and all that kind of stuff. And I, so I thought, well, maybe this whole thing is just completely wrong. Um, and so that's really how I got into it. And so my initial uh, entry point was around the issue of uh, investing in the green economy as an engine of job creation. And so having tried to model that and written some stuff on that, it then, of course, hit me over the head that I was talking about uh, environmental protection, climate stabilization in particular, but I wasn't talking about how much investment was necessary in order to hit the stabilization targets. So that was really the next piece, and that's basically what I've been doing. Fantastic. So this makes a lot of sense, this issue of tackling the, the ostensible trade-off of jobs and you know, clean energy investment and, and more broadly sustainability. So you know, let's get a little, a little more into that. Uh, reading your work you know, in the last several years, and especially the, the most recent book, Greening the Global Economy, I do find a pretty rare voice that's laying out this very attractive, seeming win-win scenario where you are developing the economy, achieving full employment, and through clean energy kind of rollout, as well as uh, achieving more energy efficiency, which is also really significant in your work, you're slashing greenhouse gas emissions. So I wonder if you could just outline the kind of basic parameters of your proposal here in terms of, you know, combining this massive investment in clean energy uh, with the kind of full employment program. You know, how, how does that kind of work out? And you know, what yeah. kind of money, what kind of scale are we talking about? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to it, it's all it's extremely simple in its basics. Of course, when you get down to calculations, there's a lot of complicated things. But the basic thing I'm advocating is extremely simple: uh, that uh, we invest, we meaning in the U.S. economy, and also we globally, since climate change is a global problem. So um, we invest uh, at the level of about a percent and a half of global GDP um, to um, in energy efficiency, meaning uh, buildings efficiency, raising buildings uh, efficiency, uh, transportation systems, and industrial uh, machinery, that's energy efficiency, as well as the electrical grid, raising the efficiency of the electrical grid, and then uh, also in uh, renewable energy, clean renewable energy, meaning solar, wind, geothermal, uh, small-scale hydro I would advocate for, 
and a low emissions bioenergy. So uh, what I've tried to do is really pin down how much of that kind of investment, at what level that investment is needed in order to achieve a, a specific goal. And I, I, I basically extracted from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uh, the goal of uh, the 2050 goal of reducing CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas overall, CO2 by uh, 80% uh, relative to today's level. And then uh, an inter as an intermediate target that we reduce emissions by 40% within 20 years. And so I just basically costed out what it would take to get there. And it turns out it's in the range of a percent and a half of, of GDP per year. And so that's the basic project. And then I just estimated the job impact that would result from this level of investment. And that, you know, it's critical not just that we say green investments create jobs, which they do, but that green investments, how many jobs are created through them relative to maintaining our existing fossil fuel infrastructure. And the, the overall point is, and I've looked at it for many countries, the overall point is you get two to three times more jobs for spending a given amount of money in the green economy versus maintaining our fossil fuel infrastructure. So there's this massive, massive premium on jobs if you shift energy investment right into renewables. But this other number, so one and a half or you know one percent, one and a half percent of global GDP, you know, to those of us who are not kind of you know longtime professional macroeconomists, what what are we actually talking about here in terms of let's say, since most of our listeners are probably United States, you know, the stimulus bill that Obama passed in the wake of the Great Recession, there was a concern that it wasn't uh, big enough could have been could have been bigger like you know are we talking about uh that level of stimulus basically every single year more than that less than that uh you know what how does this kind of stack up in terms of the like political economic reality yeah. that we're familiar with uh, here right now yeah, well, that's, a, that's a great question well uh first of all uh the you know the level of spending could be part of a stimulus package in fact yes in the obama 2009 stimulus, green investments were uh, really important. They were about $90 billion out of the overall $800 billion investment package. And I myself was a consultant in implementing that uh, green part of the stimulus. And in fact, had written the paper on which they, they designed that part of the stimulus. So you could think of it as a stimulus. And if it's a stimulus, the only the only thing that characterizes it differently is that it's the you know the government is injecting money into the economy probably by borrowing, um, but we don't necessarily have to think of it as a stimulus. We just have to think of it as spending, meaning uh, the government share of the spending could come out of tax revenues. Um, it could also um, be uh, part of uh, private investment. So really what I'm thinking about, when I think about the United States, if we say on the order of about $200 billion a year, uh, 200 to maybe $250 billion a year, and I think uh, that 
about 75% should come from private investments and 25% public investments. So we're really thinking about 60 to 70 billion a year in uh, public investments, um, which is, you know, roughly on the order of the stimulus program, but it, uh, it doesn't have to be a stimulus. So for example, it, it could be self-financing, and I'll give you two ways. Uh, number one is actually in 2007, under President George W. Bush, uh, we passed this law called the Energy um, Independence and uh, the, the Energy Independence and Something Act. I can't rest of the acronym. Um, anyway, under that, one of the important stipulations was that uh, all federal government buildings that were either owned by the government or leased for office space needed to raise their energy efficiency level by 30 percent uh, within as of 2015, which was last year. Um, and uh, that bill, if that had actually been implemented, it would have saved the government tens of billions of dollars a year. That would have gone a long way itself towards financing um, uh, the green investments. Now, it turns out that that bill was only implemented very modestly. Uh, most of it hasn't been done yet. So that's one way. The second way is if we have a uh, carbon tax or a carbon cap, uh, according to my estimates, a modest carbon cap, uh, such as been proposed by the Energy Department's own modeling, uh, we could raise $200 billion a year on average. So the, gen the revenue generated by that would swamp what I think is necessary in the United States to you know, more than adequately finance uh, the public side of the green investment program. Great. So um, now I want to get a bit to the um, you know how does this stack up to what Bernie and Hillary have, have been proposing? But I guess first I just got to ask the kind of Republican talking point response, which is even let's say from a, a sympathetic perspective, you know I'm thinking about Solyndra and I'm, I'm sort of wondering to throw that much money uh, into the sector starting right away. Is there, you know, are there enough projects, yeah. you know, shovel ready? Like, in other words, I, I guess yeah. kind of the question about these huge investment programs, right, is like, are you just pissing this money away or is it actually going into a productive yeah. part of the economy? Well, Solyndra was actually a big success. Mm -hmm. I mean, not Solyndra per se, but the program yeah. of which Solyndra was a part, which was uh, a loan guarantee program. It was part of the stimulus program. Uh, I document the program in, gen, uh, in this other study I did called Green Growth. It was published in 2014 by the Center for American Progress. Uh, and I don't have the exact numbers right in front of me, but I'll give you the rough numbers. There was um, about 23 loans, uh, loan guarantees that were uh, made under the program. And uh, there were three defaults of which Solyndra was the largest. The other two were pretty modest. So roughly speaking, we've got about 20 out of 23 projects that were successful, that were uh, that had been partially financed through the government loan guarantee. Uh, and the, the government losses on the program were, were actually very modest. If you're going to 
get involved in investing in anything, there's going to be risk and there's going to be some failures. That's why you have a loan guarantee program in the first place to reduce the costs of these failures. But the overwhelming impact of that loan guarantee program uh, called it was number, uh, 1705 was the exact number, was, was a success. So uh, overall, the stimulus parts of the Obama uh, Green Energy Program were broadly successful. And the, the, the biggest problem with them was that they, um, you know, after 2010, when the Republicans took the Congress, basically the money and the energy was dissipated. Nevertheless, I mean, you have uh, a well-functioning, a, a better-functioning solar energy uh, industry, wind energy industry, energy efficiency in urban areas, uh, and those successes can be built on. So I think, you know, for the most part, these things have been successful. Underlying all that is the fact that the costs of generating um, energy from renewables it keeps coming down. So that on average, on average, uh, we're at rough cost parity between, say, wind energy, geothermal energy, and uh, coal uh, for delivering a, a kilowatt of electricity. Uh, solar is still uh, more expensive, but solar is coming down. The, the costs of solar have come down about 80% in the last few years. So uh, I, I don't see why we should think it's going to be a big waste. In fact, I think they're massive investment opportunities, especially given if you know we recognize that you know we can't keep burning fossil fuels. Uh, if we take climate science seriously, we can't keep burning fossil fuels. So we have this gigantic uh, investment opportunity in front of us, which is to rebuild an entirely new energy system uh, on the basis of efficiency and clean renewables. So, I mean, I think, the, you know, the use of the word gigantic is, is interesting. And maybe, uh, you know, again, it, it's so hard to, I think, get a, a sense of these huge numbers just in terms of, uh, you know, relating them to, let's say, common sense. But, um, you, you know, it, Listening to the, to the way you describe it and, and reading your texts, it seems to me clear that what you're talking about is not an enormous, gigantic, wild overhaul of how the economy works, but a significant increase in investment in clean energy, but well within the realm of like an imaginable reality. I mean, totally, yeah. totally yeah. feasible. You know, I, I came into it really um, with no preconception as to what the result would be, um, honestly. Uh, I wasn't fishing for a result. And I actually spent a lot of time trying to understand the, the status of the actual engineering challenges with respect to building uh, energy efficiency and renewable investments. And so, I, the, you know, when I say a percent and a half of GDP, I didn't start out with that number and work my way down. I actually built up from understanding the costs of achieving uh, a unit of energy efficiency, say a quadrillion British thermal units BTUs, or a quadrillion BTUs of, of solar energy. So I built up from those cost numbers and uh, ended up with, uh, we, you know, with a goal of oh, how do we bring down emissions by 40% within 20 years and 80% by 2050. And I ended up at a, at a percent and a half of GDP, uh, which turns out to be a number that had been uh, 
batted around by other people as well, although they didn't do the kind of research I did. So I'm pretty confident that the result is reasonable. So is it a, it is not a gigantic number. So it's true. What I'm saying is, look, uh, it, it's we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, yes, in the United States, but we have an $18 trillion economy. We're talking about a trillion and a half dollars for the global economy, but uh, you know, we're, we're talking about an $80 trillion global economy. So uh, it's manageable. And you know, if you say a percentage of a half of GDP, that means, okay, well, 98% uh, of the rest of GDP can go to doing other things. Uh, and that's in the context of economic growth. So the other big point I was making is you, we do not have to think about sacrificing econo economic growth. And this is where I part company with a lot of people I respect a lot, uh, progressives who've been uh, writing about this issue, saying that the only way we can stabilize the climate is by sacrificing or eliminating economic growth. In fact, there's a term called degrowth, uh, a kind of a movement called degrowth, and I just, I don't agree with it. I don't think it's necessary. Actually, it won't even achieve the climate stabilization goals, and it's politically disastrous. Uh, there's, you know, other than a few people, uh, you're not going to get any support for stopping economic growth. Uh, certainly when you go to a developing country like India or Indonesia, where I've done some work on this, uh, there is basically zero constituency for, you know, negative economic growth. So, uh, you know, building a model that works within the framework of growth is imperative to making, to creating a realistic program that we can win. Yeah, so I, I want to get back to this to the degrowth question uh, in a little bit, but I you know I think the points you're making are very compelling, and certainly uh, the the notion of grinding growth to a halt or eliminating consumption or repressing it uh, in the you know countries that are still developing economically is is, is kind of insane and um, certainly not going to get anywhere anybody anywhere. And in fact, already the suspicion of that right is behind a lot of the difficulties in global negotiations. Um, but so, so just quickly in terms of fleshing out the the kind of North American side of this, the U.S. side of this program, you know, the DNC platform uh, adopted basically, you know, by the Clinton campaign under pressure from uh, Bernie Sanders. You know, are you seeing uh, in that platform something comparable to what you're proposing? Is the conversation on the, say, uh, progressive end of the political spectrum about where you'd like it to be right now? Or is there still some ways uh, to go from your point of view? Of course, implementation is a whole other matter, but let's just say in terms of what's put forward as a potential well, plan. You know, uh, well, if you watch the debate last night, they've gotten <laughs> change in the last 40 seconds or so. Yeah. Uh, and Hillary Clinton reiterated her position that, that fracking and natural gas or so-called bridge fuel and part of the solution. And I, you know, I strongly disagree with that. Um, in fact, the, this study I mentioned earlier, Green Growth, which was put out by the Center for American Progress, which is a Washington think tank, very closely aligned with Hillary. When I, I came up with my research and I said, look, uh, let's just be straightforward. It's true that natural gas is uh, burns more clean than, than coal, about 40% cleaner than coal. So that's good. Uh, but if even if you do a simple exercise and you say, uh, we're going to switch 100% of every 
coal burning plant in the United States, switch it to natural gas, we still won't even come close to hitting the uh, climate, um, the emissions reduction goals. So, and, and if we're going to invest in, and we have a, a, the, the progressive candidate, Hillary, saying we're going to support natural gas, when you say that, that means we're supporting it for the next 40 years because people aren't going to invest in natural gas and then sh and shut it down in five, six years. So we're going to be stuck with it. And that basically uh, condemns us to not being able to hit the emission reduction target. So uh, uh, we, if we're going to be serious about hitting the emission reduction target, we have to move away from fossil fuels of all kinds entirely. And we can do it. Uh, you know, the way that I laid it out, you know, I'm not saying we go to zero fossil fuels in, in five years or 10 years, which some people on the left are saying, and I respect them, but it's not realistic. Uh, but what I'm saying is you can, we can get emissions in the United States down absolutely by 40% uh, by reducing fossil fuel consumption 35% uh, within 20 years, which is about a 2.2% rate of decline per year. So I think that's entirely realistic, but we have to actually do it. You know, some of my the critics on the left, and I respect this point, they say, well, if you keep talking about this stuff that sounds so reasonable, it's never going to happen. You have to say, you know, we've got to go on war footing in order to even get something like what you favor to be taken seriously. So I don't think the Democrats you know, of course, there are people within the Democratic Party who are making stronger uh, statements than Clinton. But if we take Hillary Clinton as the standard bearer, uh, I'm not encouraged. I, I've certainly she put she her uh, directional support is positive as opposed to Trump, which is negative. But the uh, level of commitment and the recognition of the magnitude of the problem is is really inadequate. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned critics on the left, but there is, right, this argument now, uh, people like Kevin Anderson, Glenn Peters, you know, pretty pretty top climate scientists or, or analysts of this were saying, uh, you know, if, if you actually look at what's in the models and what's assumed, and you want to be a bit more realistic, you need to be talking about basically the U.S. decarbonizing, you know, well before 2040 in order to um, you know, in order for us to not use up our carbon budget. Obviously, part of the problem is that you put out these models in 2013, 2014, 2015. We, there's no significant reduction in CO2, so it just gets, the curve gets steeper. But, uh, right. you know, does this represent, let's say, in terms of your numbers, a massive transformation? Or is it possible to say, you know, well, okay, maybe one and a half isn't enough. Maybe it's got to be 1.7%, but it's still, yeah. you know, we're yeah. not at 10% or something. Yeah. Uh, no, again, I, of GDP. That's a good way of putting it, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So, for example, um, just uh, two weeks ago or 10 days ago, uh, this study was put out called The Truth About Climate Change, uh, with the lead author uh, being, uh, I think his name is Robert Watson, who was had been the chief scientist for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And he's saying that, first of all, he's saying that the commitments made at the Paris conference last uh, December, you know, woefully inadequate. Yeah. Um, uh, which it was evident at the time, and I've written that myself. Um, but um, he's also saying, you know, that this view that, well, really we have to aim not for uh, stabilizing the climate at 
2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, but maybe closer to 1.7 or even 1.5, and uh, in which case, yes, we have to be more aggressive. Now, yeah, so my framework is quite flexible. Uh, you know, I, I work with pretty conservative assumptions. You know, the assumptions as to the costs are from uh, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., for example, McKinsey, the consulting firm, the World Bank. So uh, really, if you, if, if, if you take my model and you say, well, let's notch it up, you know, by a half a percentage point of GDP in terms of investment, so, you know, instead of saying that renewable energy has got to grow at, say, 3% per year, so it's going to grow at 35 or 4% a year. Say, if we say that fossil fuels have to decline by 2.2% a year, which is what I'm saying, well, maybe it has to decline at 3% a year. Those are actually big differences when you do them every year, but they're manageable. And so... Uh, you know, there are differences between climate scientists also. If you if you read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change assessments, their assessments themselves have changed fairly significantly from the 2007 to the 2014. And the 2014 assessment is more conservative as to what is needed. They also give us a, a range. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in all of this. And, you know, I'm perfectly willing to say, you know, let's ramp it up and, and raise the investment requirement to 2% of GDP or 2.5% of GDP. It's still entirely feasible. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's so important to point that out. And, you know, we had Michael Mann on the show uh, a few weeks ago. The, the climate scientist, uh, you know, produced the famous hockey stick graph talking about this notion of climatic uh, tipping points. And that we're not, we haven't tipped over yet. Uh, and so this, there's this constant temptation to say, oh, well, it's over, we're doomed. Some people say, oh, we should just adapt. Others just want to close their eyes. Uh, but it's not just, you know, it's not just the environment or the atmosphere itself is not, quote unquote, tipped over. But in terms of the political economic feasibility, there still seems to me a huge amount of space here, right, for making these interventions. So I guess the question then, uh, you know, you've been up, kind of seen the policy process up close. Obviously, you were involved with the Obama green stimulus, you know, why isn't this huge win-win that you're proposing? What, what do you see as the main obstacles to this major win-win of clean energy investment, full employment, uh, yeah. kind of turning into to policy reality here? Well, I'd say there are three. Uh, the first is just inertia. Uh, you know, it's just, this is something new. Uh, we, we do things a certain way. We have a, an energy infrastructure in place. It more or less functions other than the impact on the environment. Uh, you know, you can get your gas tank filled, uh, the electricity turns on. Uh, so that's number one, inertia. Uh, number two is that uh, while the program is good for uh, jobs in general, it's obviously not good for jobs in the fossil fuel industry. So, uh, you know, again, referring to the uh, presidential debate last night, you know, Trump keeps saying, well, you know, Hillary's at war with coal country. Um, coal miners will lose their jobs. The coal industry will experience demise. Uh, that's, there's no way around it. So the only issue is not uh, whether or not that's going to happen, but whether we uh, develop a just transition program to move people out of fossil fuel 
production uh, and the communities in which they live. Um, so until we do that and we do it in a convincing way, and look, I've experienced this myself multiple times where people say, oh, you've got a bunch of numbers. That sounds cool. But, you know, I'm talking about my job here, my life, my family. And I don't, you know, it's not going to do me any good that you have all these nice numbers. So that's the second thing is resistance of the people that will be negatively affected. And the third is the, the companies that are going to be negatively affected. Um, you know, there are fossil fuel companies that have huge investments in burning fossil fuels, and they're not about to give them up without a fight. So it's just a political fight to overcome them. I mean, you know, I, I thought of an analogy when I was uh, rereading your book where you talk about how with a lot of the energy savings, uh, a lot energy efficiency improvements, it's like even three or four years down the line, you recoup those initial investments. There is some uncertainty, but generally yeah. speaking, it's not, it doesn't actually take that long. But you do need to throw down some capital up front. And this is why public development banks have historically been so important in economic development. And it struck me that there's a political aspect to this as well. Like just... I guess inertia you, you used earlier that word is so perfect. We have to kind of break this logjam, right? And I wonder, you know, what do you see as a potential nub of a coalition that actually really breaks this logjam? I mean, there's no question that the government is going to be much more involved in the economy in your in your proposal than has been the case, at least in the imagination of the last uh, couple of decades. But what you know, who are you talking to? Where where is that initial kind of nub of the coalition going and then building out, you know, from there? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I see positive, important positive developments uh, in, along two streams. One is uh, the um, coalitions emerging between uh, environmentalists and labor activists. Now, we know that the, uh, the pipeline in South Dakota created this uh, huge division between labor and environmentalists. But I think it's that's unfortunate if we, or maybe it was North Dakota, sorry. Uh, it's unfortunate if we take that as representative of what's going on. I myself am involved right now in two projects uh, between uh, labor uh, activists and, and environmentalists, and, you know, labor leadership and environmentalists, one in the state of Washington and one in the, the other one in the state of New York, on trying to develop a, a green energy program with a major component integrated into it for just transition. So I, I think that's, that's something that's growing. Uh, I think that once the recognition of the centrality of that sinks in, that's going to be great. The other thing with respect to what happens to the, on the business side, uh, is the divestment movement that is, uh, you know, is very growing and is very successful. Uh, you know, I think that what, you know, what started out at universities and religious institutions of, you know, putting the fossil fuel companies on the defensive, making it clear that this is an unethical position. There's a lot of other ways that people can make money. Uh, that certainly ethically uh, based institutions like educational institutions, religious institutions need to lead the way. Uh, the more that uh, sinks in, uh, the more successful it's going to be. I can tell you at my own institution, University of Massachusetts, uh, we had a student sit in right before the semester ended 
last May, within two to three weeks of the end of the semester. And it was, you know, it was fairly large. I wouldn't say it was gigantic, but, um, you know, the, the, the uh, chancellor of the university, the president of the entire UMass system and the board of trustees voted for divestment. They just said, you know, you're right. Students are right. I mean, there are some minor areas where they weren't as strong as the students would like, but generally uh, this was a major win. Uh, why? Because the, the, the students fought for this and the, you know, the university officials realized that this was the right thing to do. It was the only way to properly sell the university to the public as, as taking an ethical stance. And, you know, I expect this is going to happen more broadly. Fantastic. Yeah, I think these, those are two really great um, kind of coalitional moments to, to think about. Um, so now I've got to get to this kind of tough question around, uh, you know, degrowth. And I guess the you know, the, the question I'm kind of curious to ask about, and maybe it ultimately comes more from this idea Naomi Klein has pushed about selective degrowth, but, you know, in terms of thinking about how the economy changes, right? So if tons of people are getting new jobs, this is putting more money in people's pockets, people are consuming at levels they haven't before. And, and for most of the global population, I mean, that is clearly good. You know, there's almost 2 billion people who don't even have access to, to sanitation. On, on the flip side, at the top, end of the income uh, distribution, you have a huge amount of consumption, which, you know, uh, I think Kevin Anderson, the climate scientist, has said that, you know, based on numbers we have now, if the 1% were to consume like an average European, that would take already a huge chunk out of emissions, like around the order of a global fifth or something. So I guess, you know, isn't there some need in talking about growth and development and jobs to also talk, you know, realistically about kind of compression at the upper end of consumption, bringing that down, and maybe also possibly shifting some of the consumption that we do have uh, in the middle and upper middle classes from kind of physical objects to services, whether it's arts or you know yoga or massage, some way to actually change consumption. That it's not just a story about energy production, but also the way that people are living, you know, in a prosperous. Like in other words, decarbonizing prosperity, right, and not just the energy system, since it is of course all connected. Yeah. Well, I mean. As, a, as an ethical position, uh, a lot of people consume too much relative to what they need and what other people are unable to consume. I'm including myself as among those people. Uh, so I could live on a lot less. Uh, that's certainly true. And I know a lot of my good friends and family could also live on a lot less. And um, okay, so that's a good point. Um, how much is, if I consume a lot less and people like me consume a lot less, how much is it going to contribute towards climate stabilization? Uh, unfortunately, I think the answer is only very modestly, and it's, it's a simple thing to see. Um, look, if we talk about uh, needing to cut emissions by 40% within 20 years, and let's say that global consumption, and we, let's put it all on the rich people, uh, are that, but global consumption declines by 10%. If we, um, if we maintain the existing energy system and we cut con aggregate consumption by 10%, well then aggregate emissions go down by 10%. No, no more, that's a 10%. And that would be a massive, massive project to get global consumption down 
by 10%, especially if we're loading it all onto the rich people who have the most political power. Um, so it's just not, it is not a priority. And if what we really want to do is, you know, dramatically cut emissions, if we want to dramatically cut emissions, uh, the way to do it that I think will face the least amount of political resistance is transform the energy system as rapidly as possible. And we have to make comparable changes in the way uh, we conduct agriculture as well. I, I don't talk about agriculture in the book. I focus on energy, but agriculture, the uh, production is responsible for probably about 15% of overall greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, yeah, it's it's really the only only way that we can get there. You know, we again, uh, I'm in favor of a more egalitarian income distribution for a lot of reasons, and uh, the impact on emissions would be modest. I would like to say it's not going to be modest, but it is modest. The only thing that has a big impact is getting rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's an either or, and I, and I take your point that certainly carving out uh, airplane travel for the leisure activities of the wealthy, I mean, that alone is not a, it's not a platform. Um, it's, you know, airplane emissions have to go down, but that, that alone is definitely not the solution. At, at the same time, I, you know, I don't know if you are of the, how much you love the term, let's say the Green New Deal, but... I like it. But we remember, right, that during the New Deal, I mean, a, a large... A big outcome of the New Deal, right, is that actually you do have a, a pretty significant compression of the income distribution in the in the United States. So I wonder, you know, if, if it, in terms of sort of taking this analogy, you know, seriously, aren't we, you know, is it just a question of the rising tide lifts all boats, but in a kind of green, low carbon way? Yeah. Or do we have to think about the fact that, yes, the resistance might not just come from fossil fuels, but that when you talk about really blowing up the public sector uh, or increasing public investment, then invariably you get into these distributional conflicts, which includes like power. And so, you know, I think for those of us on the left, ideally a, a happy outcome is, that, you know, that a kind of collectivizing of consumption as well and more more income inequality. Or, I mean, or do you just see that as being a second no, issue, which I'm is nice? For, I'm not, for all those things. And, yeah. you know, I, I um, among other things, I drafted the um, Wall Street tax proposal that Bernie Sanders used. I mean, I did the work on that a long time ago, but uh, that that you know the, the Wall Street tax that uh, I drafted, I estimate generates on the order of three hundred billion dollars a year in revenue. And Bernie Sanders was saying he was going to use it to pay for um, free uh, college education at public institutions. Uh, the Wall Street tax would pay for it four times over, and then we'd still have plenty left for um, investing in a green economy, investing in infrastructure, and cutting everybody else's taxes. So I'm all for that. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not against it at all. Um, but we can do that, but unless we also dramatically reduce uh, fossil fuel consumption and substitute green energy, it is not, we're not going to hit the climate stabilization goals. So, you know, and, and you know, the reason the income distribution became much more equal in the 1930s was because Wall Street collapsed, so the value of financial assets collapsed. What is more significant in terms of uh, egalitarian trajectories was that 
after 1930s, you know, you had a much more egalitarian economy. You had a modest social democratic uh, ver variant of the U.S., relatively low unemployment, and then critically, you had raise wages, average wages rising more or less in step with average productivity growth. So that's how you had a more equal society. When you broke the link in the 1980s between productivity growth and wages, so wages stagnated, productivity growth went up, uh, we cut back on the, uh, on the social welfare state, so that's why we have more inequality. Um, so I am all for reversing the long-term trend in inequality, and I think it will have a modest positive impact on uh, reducing emissions, but not a big enough impact, not nearly big enough. So I guess just to, to close out then, um, you know, I think we, we don't know what's going to happen. And as you said earlier, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, but there is a very, very strong case for acting now in terms of getting a Green New Deal type program implemented. So, you know, in terms of your own work, uh, you've done this major global study uh, that can speak to regions all over the world. You've got this work, I understand, coming out shortly on a, you know, a transition, a just transition program so that right. fossil fuel industry workers are not unduly penalized. But, you know, what's the research agenda uh, for, you know, the next three to four years for you thinking about these questions of, you know, clean energy investment and, and really transforming the economy and decarbonizing it at the same time? Well, thanks. Thanks for your interest in asking such a question. Um, yes, I do have a paper. It's sitting right here on my desk. I hope to post it as a working paper, if not today, uh, tomorrow or the next day, on just transition. I did an early version of it last summer in the um, American Prospect with uh, my co-authors, Brian Kalachi, who's a graduate student here at UMass. Um, so my own agenda is um, really to... Um, uh, work on some of the most critical parts of this project, which is to understand the prospects much better for China. Uh, you know, according to the Paris Agreement, China says they're going to stabilize emissions by 2030. Well, uh, and everyone's cheering that. Well, actually, that's calamitous. Uh, if China grows, you know, they, even if their growth slows to, say, 5 6% a year, but their emission levels keep going up to even to 2030, there's no way we're going to hit the emission reduction target. Similarly, if India and Indonesia do something like that, again, we're basically doomed. So I'm also, I've done one paper in India that was in the uh, Economic and Political Weekly in India last year, and I was speaking in India, and I'm, so I'm expanding the work into India. And uh, so, and then I want to also work on the issues of uh, the impact on countries that have uh, that are importing energy versus exporting. So I've done work in Spain uh, with the political party Podemos on the fact that basically uh, Spain is an energy importer. So this project of going green for them has a, a you know an added positive benefit of import substitution uh, instead of buying imported energy of, of generating energy on their home turf. So those are the, uh, the broad areas, and this hopefully will be another, a bigger book. And then, you know, also I'm trying to keep in touch with activist groups, labor groups, and, and when they ask me to write things, I'm, I'm working with them. So that's basically it. Great. So it's basically taking this Green New Deal globally and then flushing it out in all these major uh, regions where the emissions are kind of up for grabs. Is that right? Yes. 
Well, that sound, I mean, that sounds really good. So we'll be, uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Daniel, I don't know how you're feeling, but I feel like I'm leaving this podcast on a higher note than the one we started on. Nothing like talk of massive public investment just to get me riled up. That's right. At this point, I would really say that I'm having a great time. Uh, so yeah, you know, the doom and gloom is, is gloomy, but it's the whole thing is, is very far from over. We actually have a pretty good plan. I would even say a beautiful plan. A tremendous plan. And if, if you like the show, Something else that would be tremendous is if you would rate us on iTunes and tweet your feedback, comments, angry denialist rants, and thoughts on our relationship to the corporate duopoly to hashtag hot bothered climate. Well, okay. You're really uh, still throwing shade at Jill Stein there. Always. But more on that in the next episode. I cannot wait. See you next time. Bye. Bye.